Good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Elizabeth Winston, and I'm the new Director of Development here at the CIC. And I'm very excited to welcome you all tonight and to introduce our speaker, Daniel Matson. Daniel is a writer and public speaker who proclaims the good news of the Catholic Church's teaching on same-sex attraction. He has written for a range of popular publications, including First Things, the National Catholic Register, Communio, and Crisis Magazine, among others. He has appeared on EWTN and is a frequent guest on Catholic Radio. His story was shared in the award-winning documentary, Desire of the Everlasting Hills, produced by the Courage Apostolate. Daniel is also a professional orchestral trombone player and has performed and presented master classes around the world, including at the famed St. Petersburg Conservatory in Russia. And while we won't have the pleasure of hearing Daniel play the trombone tonight, we do have the chance to hear his other notes, thoughts, and reflections as he discusses his new book, Why I Don't Call Myself Gay, How I Reclaimed My Sexual Reality and Found Peace. In his new book, Daniel discusses his personal journey to and from a gay identity and details the importance for the church to have a prophetic role in the world in reclaiming sexual reality. And with that, please join me in welcoming Daniel Matson. Well, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me here. It's a great honor to be here. I have to thank Rosemary and Mitch and especially Father Paul Scalia for helping to arrange this. So uh, thank you, Father. It's always it's strange. I have a book now, and now I get intro- introduced like he's a writer and public speaker. Um, and it's such a str- I don't view myself that way. I'm a, I'm a regular guy. I really like craft beer. I'd rather have that be... Uh, part of my biography but but you know God calls us to do certain things and uh, one of those was to share something that I never wanted to share or let anyone know about and uh, I was terrified to be in that movie Desire of the Everlasting Hills but it's been a great gift to be a part of that and this is why I continued that ministry to share the good news of the church's teaching and why I wrote the book. So thank you for being here. What I'd like to do today, I'm going to talk a little bit about my journey as a prodigal son, and I'm going to direct this uh, as if I was talking to somebody like myself, uh, somebody who's living with same-sex attraction. These are the sorts of things that I would have wanted to know. And I also want to um, share, uh, especially I'm going to talk to parents here who might, might have a son or daughter who who has made the step of coming out. I had, I don't know how many of you saw the picture of the prodigal son that I had here before. It was by Murillo. That's actually my favorite version of the story. And there's a couple things in there. What I love about it is there's a picture of the fatted calf in the picture itself. You know, little kids are bringing it there. There's going to be a party, and there's a little dog there. And to me, that that says more about the beauty of the story of the prodigal son to me than Rembrandt's, though I love that too. But let's let's start at the beginning. When I think about my the lessons I've learned on my journey of the prodigal son, uh, there's a rather little-known quote from St. John Paul II from Love and Responsibility that pretty much sums up my life. He says this, An exuberant and readily aroused sensuality is the stuff from which a rich, if difficult, personal life may be made. That about sums up my journey as a prodigal son. Because of that easily aroused sensuality, one of the most important lessons I've learned is that on my own, I'm pretty much a mess. When I think of my lifelong battle for chastity, I think of what St. Paul said. I do not understand my own actions. I can will to do what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. This is a common human experience. But nowhere is this more the case than in man's battle for chastity. On this, all the saints agree, such as St. John Cassian, who said, And though in everything it can be shown that men always have need of God's help and that human weakness cannot accomplish anything that has to do with salvation by itself alone, that is, without the aid of God, in nothing is this more clearly shown than in the acquisition and preservation of chastity. Remember what St. Paul said in response to the battle that waged inside him, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a lot of people I find don't realize is that a lot of the saints believed that St. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a battle against the temptation to unchastity. 
We all know the familiar story of his thorn in the flesh, how he begged of our Lord three times, will you remove this? But then Christ said to him, my grace is sufficient. I, and then what did St. Paul said? He said, I will glory in my weakness. Now the church doesn't say what that thorn in the flesh really is. But I'm grateful that, that many of the saints, like the doctor of the church, St. Alphonsus Liguori, believed and taught that St. Paul's thorn in the flesh was a temptation to unchastity. St. Alphonsus writes that even St. Paul groaned under temptations against chastity. He three times prayed to the Lord to deliver him from these temptations. But in answer, the Lord said to him that his grace was sufficient for him. And he says, God permits even his servants to be tempted as well as to try their fidelity as to purify them from their imperfections. So what does it mean to live out for someone who has such a battle, with, has had a battle with chastity? What does it mean to, have, to say that God's grace is sufficient? First and foremost, we must be humble and honest with ourselves to admit that we are weak creatures who need the grace of God to do anything good. Thankfully, those of us who have struggled with sins of unchastity are pretty certain about that issue. But once we've recognized our weakness, we have to be patient with ourselves and remember that we're pilgrims on a journey, and we all progress at our own pace. St. John Paul II said, Chastity is a difficult long-term matter. One must wait patiently for it to bear fruit, for the happiness of loving kindness, which it must bring. But at the same time, chastity is the sure way to happiness. Let me share some wisdom from Blessed Columba Marmion, which have helped me immensely and forms the basis of, of part of my book, a chapter I call Jesus is Our Holiness. Marmion writes, Do not let yourself be discouraged by your miseries. The good God leaves you some miseries to convince you thoroughly that you can do nothing. He does not wish us to be able to attribute to ourselves whatever good we can accomplish. And this is the key line for me. Jesus is our holiness. We must be faithful and wait for him to act in us. Being gentle and patient, patient with ourselves is essential here, as gentle and patient with ourselves as God is with us. One of the most important lessons I've learned as a prodigal son is that Jesus is far more reasonable with me than I am with myself. And those of you wait, feel free to come on in. There's some room here. Thanks for coming. Um, so Jesus is far more reasonable with us than I am with myself. There's a beautiful little book called My Daily Life. I, I ran into it as a Protestant. Um, I don't get into that. I won't talk about that story, but I'm a, I'm a revert to Catholicism. But I ran into this little book at the Adoration Chapel. I went to the Adoration Chapel as an evangelical, and it was published by the Confraternity of the Precious Blood. As an evangelical, I could make no sense of that at all. <laughs> But what I read there changed my life. It said, there's a line in there that says, Jesus is far more reasonable with you than you are with yourself. He does not expect you today to be the better person you could be next year. It will take you a year to gain the wisdom, prudence, and strength that will be yours a year from now. This knowledge is essential in the spiritual walk and has been essential for me in my journey for chastity. Jesus is reasonable with us, knowing we're on a journey. We're pilgrims becoming who we're meant to be. He knows the weakness of our nature. That's why he came and became one of us. If Christ is patient with us, we must likewise be patient with ourselves and strive to see ourselves as God sees us, as spiritual children who are slowly learning to walk in the paths he set before us. The learning process, of course, involves a lot of stumbling along the way. When that happens, words of St. Francis de Sales, written to his spiritual daughter, St. Jean-Francois de Chantel, have helped me immensely here. This is what he said. If you happen to do something you regret, be neither astonished nor upset, but having acknowledged your failing, humble yourself quietly before God and try to regain your gentle composure. Say to yourself, there we have made a mistake, but let's go on now and be more careful. Every time you fall, do the same. When's the last time you said that before you went into confession? Right? We don't, we don't treat ourselves that way, right? I wish I had learned these, these lines of St. Francis of Sales 20 years ago when I was just struggling with so many of these, these battles in my life. I'd like to share another story of Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, which has helped me immensely. It was said of him 
that he knew his great need for a confessor to receive absolution for the sins he committed. He acknowledged his sins and was not surprised by them. He confessed them to God and did not plead before him to excuse them. But after that, he returned to his ordinary exercise of love and adoration and peace. In the subtitle of my book, I say that I found peace in the church. Well, how do we find that peace in our pilgrimage here on earth as we're journeying toward becoming who we're created to be? Brother Lawrence has become my model. How many of us here have, are ever seriously surprised by our sins? I don't think anyone is, right? Our best response is to admit our failings, shake our heads at our predictability, pick ourselves up, go to confession, and start on our way again in peace. And we have to have a certain lightheartedness and a sense of humor about attaining the virtues that we struggle with. Brother Lawrence apparently would say to God, I will never do anything right if you leave me alone. It's up to you to stop me from falling and correct what is wrong. And after that, the book, the, his, his biographer says, after that, he no longer worried about his failure. You've been absolved. The, the beautiful lines of, of the priest help me in that journey. Let's be like Brother Lawrence and consider the words of St. Paul, who said, Behold, I do not consider that I've made it on my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. St. Paul must be our example while we wait for the Lord to bring someone like me chastity or whatever virtue we lack. And when we fall along the way, as we all do, regardless of whether that's a sin of unchastity or having one too many chocolate chip cookies, which is another great temptation of mine, let's think of these words of St. Francis de Sales again to his spiritual daughter. Most importantly, my dear daughter, don't lose heart. Be patient. Wait. Do all you can to, to develop a spirit of compassion, of course, to herself. I have no doubt that God is holding you by the hand. If he allows you to stumble, it is only to let you know that if he were not holding your hand, you would fall. This is how he gets you to take a tighter hold of his hand. I still recall a moment in my life not long after I came back to the church when I slipped and stumbled and I found a man to spend the night with. I was devastated and was so disappointed with myself and so ashamed. I went on retreat soon after and shared my sorrows and regrets with one of the kindly priests from the community of St. John in Peoria, Illinois. And he told me words I've never forgotten. He said, sometimes God allows a fall so that we might learn to cling to him ever more tightly. All I want to do the rest of my life is learn to cling more tightly to Jesus. If I stumble, it makes me just want to run to my Heavenly Father all the more. And in the process, my Heavenly Father picks me up and is teaching me how to walk. Here I think of the third and final paragraph of the Catechism's treatment of homosexuality, which we don't hear about much. All we're hearing about is sensitivity, respect, and compassion right now. But there's so much richness in the Catechism's teaching on, on homosexuality. This is what the third paragraph says. Homosexual persons are called to chastity by the virtues of self-mastery that teach them inner freedom, at times by the support of disinterested friendship. By prayer and sacramental grace, they can and should gradually and resolutely approach Christian perfection. That means Christian perfection is possible for me. What I love about this is that it gives me hope. It may be a gradual process, perhaps a snail's pace, but with the help of God and the graces that come from his church, and by remembering that Jesus is my holiness, my Savior, my champion, I can approach Christian perfection. I can do it. And we all can do that, whatever our struggles are. By the grace of God, I can do it, but of course, it's Christ in me that will be the one doing it. The key here, which the Catechism teaches me, is that I need to pursue this resolutely. That's an act of my will. I need to resolve to do it and to try my best. So when we're battling for virtues, and here I'm talking about the virtue of chastity, how do we do this? Once again, that beautiful little book, My Daily Life, which I cannot recommend highly enough to people, it gave me at a time I despaired of ever growing in chastity, the guide that I have used for the rest of my life. This is what it says. Though you may never be the kind of person you would like to be, you can certainly come a little closer to your goal with a bit of intelligent planning. Even if there have been little or no visible growth through the years, at least you can offer him a persevering daily effort as a sign of your genuine goodwill. 
Busy as your daily routine may, may be, you can fit your effort into the limited time available to, to you. Read a little, think a little, apply it to your daily routine, resolve a little, practice a little, and renew your intention when you fall and begin again. And this has been the key to me in a very difficult journey towards Christian virtue. Never count the failures, but rather count the renewed efforts. This positive attitude will help you maintain a firm determination to keep trying for the rest of your life. If you accomplish more than to avoid the extremes of discouragement, complacency, or rigid attitudes, your efforts will be acknowledged by the Lord. In other words, your effort was the best proof of your sincerity and love for God. How beautiful I find that to be. This has made the spiritual life for me seem doable. I can do that with the help of God. Our Father in heaven is not an ogre or a stern father. No, he loves us and he understands our weakness. He wants our happiness in this life and the next, and he has given us his Son to be our holiness, to live within us, to accomplish through the power of his divinity what we can't do on our own. Here it is the words of St. Paul in Galatians 1 that I recall. It is no longer I but Christ. Thanks be to God. Now, I would like to turn to some reflections on loneliness now. The Catechism uh, tells me how helpful disinterested friendship is in my journey toward, toward living the virtuous life. And I talk about disinterested friendship in my book. It's a difficult phrase. I'm not going to talk about that right now. But I'm still confronted, even though I have a wealth of friendships, I'm confronted with the, the specter of loneliness sometimes. Of course, that's a universal human condition. But now I have come, after a long journey, I've come to view loneliness as a precious gift from God to me. That's strange, I know, but Henry Nouwen helped me to see it that way, and we now know that Henry Nouwen lived with same-sex attraction. He said in his book, The Wounded Healer, that he viewed loneliness like he viewed the beauty of the Grand Canyon. I didn't understand that when I first read it, but now I do. The journey to reach that awareness has been arduous. I remember moments where I lay in the middle of my living room, curled up on the floor in a fetal position, weeping and wailing in agony, feeling loneliness creep over me like a shroud. Loneliness causes me physical pain sometimes, like a vice gripping my chest. And the loneliness I've felt in my life has been the greatest source of doubt about God's love and faithfulness in my life. So often in those sorts of moments, I have wondered when I would experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. The servant of God, Catherine Doherty, who was the founder of the Madonna House Apostolate, has helped, my, helped shape my view of loneliness as well. She was, despite what her Irish married name says, she was born into a wealthy Russian family in 1896. And during the Bolshevik Revolution, her family was forced to flee from Russia through harrowing circumstances where they almost starved to death. Married and now with a young son, Catherine emigrated to Canada. Because of her close encounter with death through starvation and poverty, Catherine became convinced that God was calling her to minister to the poor, both those who suffered material poverty and spiritual poverty. In Toronto, she opened a mission to the poor, naming it Friendship House, and eventually settled in a very impoverished part of rural Ontario, Combermere, where she formed the Madonna House Apostolate. From the very beginning, she has had a charism towards friendship, toward helping those who suffer from the great pain of loneliness. In loneliness, she saw a great invitation, something that I believe could only ever occur to a saint. One of the priests of the Madonna House Apostolate described how she saw loneliness. Of all the various kinds of sufferings undergone by Christ and his members, physical pain, rejection, ingratitude, there's one kind of pain more central for Catherine than any others, loneliness. Here I'd like to pause for a moment and turn to what I find to be the most valuable part of the Catechism's treatment of homosexuality for me. In paragraph 2358, the Catechism says, these persons are called to fulfill, in, fulfill God's will in their lives, and if they are Christians, to unite to the sacrifice of the, the Lord's cross, the dif difficulties they may encounter from their condition. Well, what does it mean for me to unite to the sacrifice of the Lord's cross, the difficulties I may encounter from my condition? 
Catherine Doherty has helped me immensely here. In a book called In the Footprints of Loneliness, she said that whenever anyone asked her advice about loneliness, she said she would take them by the hand and lead them to Gethsemane, to the utter loneliness of Christ as the apostles slept. There they could see Christ in his loneliness, sweating blood upon a stone, and in a manner of speaking, gathering up the loneliness of the whole world as his precious blood fell upon that stone. She said, loneliness is a state, an emotion that can come from the depths of hell or from the heights of heaven. One of the first things in facing loneliness, any kind of loneliness, is to understand that Christ calls some people to share his loneliness. Then we too, with his help, can redeem the world. All those who follow in his footsteps, all those who never deviate from his teachings, find that these teachings are revolutionary. The revolutionary question she asks is hard for modern man to embrace. She says, at what point will we understand that happiness lies in entering loneliness, in entering its belly, and there suddenly meeting God? His way is terrible and harsh. If you don't accept that, you will never know him and you will never know happiness. If you meet God in loneliness, he will reveal himself to you. And as soon as I forget myself, the Lord fills me with the consolation that I can give to others, and he gives me compassion for others. So what does this sort of consolation look like? I don't believe what Doherty is talking about is that the consolation of our hearts is is the taking away of the loneliness we feel. Rather, when we begin to see loneliness as a gift from God to enter the loneliness of the cross, united with his sacrifice for the sake of the world, will find a way through the loneliness we experience. Such has been my case, the case with me. I remember a particular painful season of loneliness in my life. I had been invited to a newly married couple's home around Thanksgiving, and they began talking about the holiday traditions that they wanted to have with their own family. And as they talked, all I could think about was the empty chair next to me. Why hadn't God arranged things for me so that I could have a wife and have a family like them, I fell into self-pity. I remember walking out on a cool evening and looking at the stars and saying, hey, Lord, what about me? I'm a bit lonely. And a thought pressed itself on my mind. Who are you willing to carry that loneliness for? Now, I know that didn't come from me, because I would have never thought that in a million years. But that changed my life. The, lever, the revolutionary way that Catherine Doherty viewed loneliness, which the world simply cannot understand, is that whether loneliness comes from the depths of hell or from the heights of heaven depends solely upon us and our will to choose which of the two it will be. When we choose to accept loneliness when it comes, and is there any more revolutionary act than that, it becomes a gift from God allowed by him so that we might join with him in the redemption of the world. For Catherine Doherty, the path through loneliness meant entering into the loneliness of Christ. She thought it viewed it as a creative loneliness, a salvific loneliness. It is my loneliness, she says, being permitted to share the loneliness of Christ. By hanging on the cross of loneliness, as she says, the healing rays of the cross like the rays of the sun will penetrate the earth. She also desired in her own loneliness to console the loneliness of Christ. For her, the cry of Christ on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, echoed the loneliness of the human race. I often have reflected on the beautiful spirituality of the women in courage, who I wish you all could know. They're, just, they're, they're wonderful women. And it seems to me that they have been given a special in- invitation to minister to the lonely heart of Jesus. It seems part of the feminine, feminine genius that women are called to console the suffering of our Lord. Consider what happened at Calvary. Who was there at the foot of the cross? Mary, the mother of our Lord. Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Salome, the sister of Mary. And Mary of Clopas, along with the beloved uh, disciple, John. I believe women have an especially sensitive heart to the suffering of Jesus. And Catherine Doherty's heart was set aflame in her desire to, as she said, to assuage the loneliness of Christ. And here we just celebrated the, the, the feast day, the first feast day of St. Teresa of Calcutta. 
And one of the great desires of her heart was to bring joy to the suffering heart of Jesus. In, in the book about her life, Come Be My Light, her biography said that she had insisted that it be worth going through every possible suffering just for one single soul and offering everything for just that one because that one would bring great joy to the heart of Jesus. This was during some of the most painful times of the dark desolation of her, her own soul, which she embraced willingly out of love for her Lord. What I find so striking is that her thirst for souls to know Jesus wasn't merely for their sake. She wanted to suffer someone into the kingdom to bring joy to the heart of Jesus. What a remarkable example she is for us in our own sufferings. And this causes me to embrace loneliness when it comes. Loneliness, she wrote, she, she wrote in her diary, she said, Today, my God, what tortures of loneliness. I wonder how long I will suffer this. She called deep loneliness her traveling companion and wrote to her spiritual director how inexpressible her loneliness was. Yet she embraced it all for the sake of souls who find joy themselves in the heart of Jesus and bring joy to his heart. Now, I'm just a, a layman and, and uh, a saint wannabe, not one yet, but I'm inspired by her willing acceptance of loneliness. And when it comes, I look to her as my example. But let's, let's return to something else Catherine Doherty said. When we embrace loneliness, we begin to have compassion for others. One of the paths through loneliness for me is to follow, has been to follow the path of St. Francis of Assisi. It is better to console rather than to be consoled. I'm wondering how many of you might have heard this story that came from Italy uh, earlier this year, where some police went, were called to a, an apartment where they, the, the neighbors heard this wailing and, and, and moaning from the residents there. And anybody hear that story? So, so the police... Police went there and said, what's wrong? And it was an elderly couple in their 80s. And they were so sad because no one had visited them for about three months. And the policemen made pasta for them and sat down and had dinner with them. It's a beautiful, it's, there's pictures, you could look it up. It, it's a beautiful story. And so what, what, um, what I find in my own loneliness, and we all feel loneliness, we have to reach out to others. I'm, I'm uh, my two co-subjects uh, of Desire of the Everlasting Hills um, are inspiration of, inspirations to me. Paul Darrow, he goes and works in a prison ministry. He, he really finds fulfillment in, in reaching out to them. And, and Rylene, uh, she suffers from loneliness. Well, she has, she, every week she invites people to her home on, on Sunday night. And this, for me, is a call to hospitality. So this is a, a, a rich... The, the men and women of courage who are really walking this journey and have done it for a long time have become a real inspiration to me and hopefully to you in your own loneliness. Because loneliness is a universal experience, right? Many are lonely even in marriage, even surrounded by a large family. And when we are lonely, the most important question that we can ask is this. In our loneliness, who can we serve? Who can we help in their own journey? When we are lonely, of course, we do well to find ways to minimize our loneliness. I think this is where the Courage Apostolate, which I'm a part of, uh, is so wise in one of its goals, which is to grow and foster friendship. Father Philip Bochansky, Courage's executive director, has always had a wise view that one of the purposes of Courage is that, in part, it is a training ground for friendship. When I was younger, striving to live a chaste life as best I could, I had a distorted view of friendship. I, I wanted to have some sort of friendship with a man that echoed the relationship of a man with a wife, friendship as a spousal imitation of sorts. But I realize now that what I was really longing for and what I think is at the heart of all same-sex attraction is it's, it's a deep longing for deep same-sex intimacy. What I longed for wasn't really a friendship. It was a dream world of friendship. The Catechism tells us that chastity blossoms in friendship, and I have found that to be the case, but it has taken me for a long time to discover that the love of friendship, what the Greeks called philia, has nothing to do with sexual love or eros. 
C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, has been immensely helpful in my journey there, and I recommend it highly to anyone who's living with same-sex attraction. Finally, I'd like to say two things about loneliness and same-sex attraction before I close this section out. First, I believe that for some of us, an answer to loneliness may be found in a lay community. I visited the Madonna House Apostolate earlier this year, which is one reason I've become such a fan of Catherine Doherty. All the men and women there are single, and one of the men there I met lives with same-sex attraction. And he told me that in his own battle for chastity, he realized that he needed to live out chastity within a community. I wonder if, for many young people, if this is an option for them. And I believe that the church needs to work to foster more of these sorts of lay apostolates. Secondly, I think for those of us who live with same-sex attraction, if we cling too strongly to the idea of being gay or think of our sexual orientation as same-sex attracted, we close the door to the possibility that God's will for us may be that we become married. Key here for me is to have the humility before God to realize that I am made and created, and by my very nature as a man, I am made for union with a woman. For some people, like many people I know in courage, the loneliness of the single life may be answered through marriage, but we don't often hear about that as a possibility today. Now, that's nothing that I want, really, but I'm open to it if it's God's will for me. And this brings me to another very important lesson I've learned, lesson I've learned on my journey of becoming the prodigal son and coming back home, the importance of humility. In life, it seems to me there's nothing more important than saying like Our Lady did at the Annunciation, be it done to me according to thy word. Most of my life, I've said just the opposite, trying to make deals with the Lord, sort of like St. Augustine's famous line, give me chastity, Lord, but not yet. (laughs) But the word of God is clear to us. We must govern our passions in accordance with right reason and the revealed word of God. That takes humility and trying as best we can each and every day to say as Christ did, thy will be done, but not mine. But of course, that's hard because I'm not the savior of the world or his mother. Humility makes me realize that it's only Christ in me who can accomplish that task. But I think there's more to be learned in Mary's humble response to the angel Gabriel. Behold, she says, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. In her humility, Mary accepts her vocation, her calling, and using modern terms, she accepts her identity as the mother of our Lord, the new Eve, the new mother of the living. Who she says she is, is who God the Father says she is. I believe there's a great lesson for a man like me there, too. I haven't yet talked about the title of my book or the primary reason why I don't call myself gay. There was a period of time where I decided that who I was was a gay man. Yet now I've come to realize I don't have a choice in determining who I am. Humility for me means accepting who God says I am, like Mary did. I once read a story about a man's moment when he decided that he was really a gay man. It struck me as a symptom of our times. His moment of epiphany came while watching a scene from the Broadway music Lacasia Falls where Elvin, the cross-dressing drag queen, sings a song that I think could be a creed for modern man. He sings this, I am what I am. I am my own special creation. It's my world that I want to take a little pride in. My world, and it's not a place I have to hide in. I am what I am, and what I am needs no excuses. Notice how this mocks the name God gave to himself. When Moses asked him for for his name, what am I going to tell them? Tell them, God says to Moses, I am who I am has sent you. No surprise is it when we read of gay pride parades or transgender pride. The enemy of our souls wanted to be like God, and so too does modern man. He wants to and believes he can be his own special creation. I love what Pope Benedict XVI said in response to this sort of thinking in 2011. He says, man is not merely self-creating freedom. 
man does not create himself. He is intellect and will, but he is also nature, and his will is rightly ordered if he respects his nature, listens to it, and accepts himself for who he is as one who did not create himself. And in this way, and in no other way, is human freedom fulfilled. I am a creature, not the creator. Humility ultimately means accepting the truth of the way things really are and then trying to live my life as best I can, guided by that truth. Humility, then, is the necessary path for me to true freedom and peace. That means that, for me at least, I'm convinced I need to use the words God used to define my created nature as a man. I'm not a gay man, nor do I define myself as a same-sex attracted man. I'm a man just like Adam, just like Abraham and Isaac, just like my own fathers and brothers. Humility to my true nature is also what keeps me open to the possibility that God may want me to be married. Now, I'm not looking for a wife or desirous really of being married, and, and in fact, I write in my book that the idea sort of gives me the heebie-jeebies. I think that may be the first time heebie-jeebies ever got into an Ignatius Press book. <laughs> Belsazar, I don't think, was popular about writing about the heebie-jeebies of the spiritual life. But regardless, humility before God as a creature made by him makes me realize that my true sexual orientation is toward women. I don't work at all in trying to make myself pine for women, but I refuse to close the door to that possibility because of viewing myself incorrectly as a gay man. Now, I know one sign that God might want me to be married is that I will respond to any Eve he might bring to me in the same words of Adam. Here at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That means that God would inspire within me desire for the Eve that he brought to me. Here I recognize that marriage ultimately is about the sanctification of husband and wife, which involves great sacrifices of love for both. I've become pretty comfortable in my single life now that I've gone through this journey, and I sometimes wonder if maybe God will bring a woman in my life whom I am totally smitten with, because maybe the way God will want me to grow deeper in love for him is by laying down my life for a wife, like he laid down his life for me. Humility to my true identity keeps me open to that possibility. Now, some of you might be parents or family members of someone uh, here who has someone with same-sex attraction. So I want to speak now to you, where, where somebody in your family has maybe become a prodigal son. We all can say in a certain sense that we are the prodigal son, right? But not everyone is actually living out the prodigal son life, son's life like I did. One of, the, one of the challenges, the great challenges of the story of, of the prodigal son is a challenge to the parents. Namely, you need to allow your loved one the freedom of leaving home, of leaving God behind and his church. You need to allow him to actually have the freedom to be the prodigal son. Now, if, I find that when parents come to a courage conference for the first time, most of them come because they are looking for answers immediately as how to get their prodigal son or daughter back home safe and sound to the church. Now that's a noble aim, of course. But here in the example of the father in, this, in the story, we see a fundamental truth that we have to give our children freedom to choose their own paths. Of course, we can see in the story of the prodigal son Echoes of Eden, God desires that all men freely choose to love him without free will and the freedom to choose to actually leave our father's house, we would not be able to freely choose him with our own will. We'd be nothing more than robots who bowed down before God because we are programmed to do so. But here I'd like to give parents hope. It's pretty safe to say that for the members of Courage and for me, who were raised in the church and followed the path of the prodigal son, the first step we took towards truly living in our father's house was the first step we took when we left it. And so when I talk to parents, I, say, I urge them to cling to hope, and I'll get back to that in a moment, because we know the story has a good ending, right? But for now, we have to live in the tension of the moment when the son leaves, the moment of the son's departure, the, way, the place where so many parents in the church are living today. From the story, we know that the father 
had the foresight to know that his son would squander his inheritance, yet he let him go. One of the lessons here, I think, is a very difficult one that I take from an example of what Father John Harvey, the founder of Courage, said to us. He would often say to us, don't work towards chastity with white knuckle. Don't white knuckle, what he would say. In many of the stories I hear from parents as I travel across the country, I'm convinced some parents cling to their prodigal children with a white-knuckled determination, convinced that if they can just say the right thing at the right time in the right way and keep saying it over and over, they can save their prodigal children. Yet so often in the process, they merely push their child further away, like when my mom gave me the catechism for Christmas. I don't recommend that. It was a good doorstop for me. (laughs) Parents can't white-knuckle their children to salvation, all right? Let's remember this truth. God doesn't have any grandchildren. Here I think often of the story of Isaac and Abraham and that moment when God asked Abraham to offer his son Isaac in the mountains of Moriah. It's one of the most poignant moments in the Old Testament, that moment where God revealed to Israel the very means of their future redemption. God himself would offer his own son as a living sacrifice for his chosen people. I urge parents in some sense to do the same, to give their child back to God. In in a quiet moment in the Adoration Chapel or the Mass, lay your prodigal son on the altar and give all your hopes and dreams, your worries, your fears, everything that troubles you. Give them and your child to God and then say, Jesus, I trust in you. For some parents, the hardest thing you will have to face in this battle is letting go of your child and giving him totally and completely to God. While you wait for the homecoming, there's going to be pain. I'm so heartbroken at the pain of parents whose child leaves the church behind. When I first came to Courage Conferences, all I could see was my pain. But I see now how much pain family members feel. Many of them have had their families literally torn asunder. Some of them are viewed as the enemy of their own son or daughter by their other sons and daughters. The parents of Encourage are living out in a very real sense, a martyrdom. The call to follow Jesus is very costly for them. And so what can they do? What can parents of prodigal sons do? I've always been struck by the stories of mothers who recall the pain of labor, Everyone I've ever heard talk about this has said that they forgot the pain as soon as they held their child. And I'm convinced that the pain that parents of prodigal children feel today, either from the rejection they feel from their children or the rejection they feel from other members of the family, or because of the pain they feel because of the bad choices their son or daughter is making, these are the labor pains of their child's spiritual rebirth. The answer is at the cross. The tears of parents of prodigal sons are never wasted. When I hear from heartbroken parents of prodigal sons, I urge them to think of the tears and prayers of the mother of St. Dismas. Who knows who St. Dismas is? The good thief. St. Dismas is the good thief. The one whom Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now we don't know who his mother is. But I imagine she often went to the temple beseeching God for her son's salvation. She must have been like St. Monica, weeping and praying for the salvation of St. Augustine. But could the mother of St. Dismas have known what divine providence had in store for her? The very source of her pain and sorrow, her son's wayward ways, became the vehicle by which salvation would come to her son. Imagine that for a moment. Little did she know that the path to her son's salvation was a crucifixion and that her son had a divine appointment that day with the incarnate son of God. So we can say with confidence that the most important moment in his life was the day he was crucified with our Lord and in God's remarkable manner of working all things for good, the second most important moment in St. Dismas' life was the crime he committed that sent him to the cross, sent him right there next to Jesus. 
St. Dismas is now in heaven, no doubt, singing God's praises with his mother who shed so many tears for him and for his salvation. Today I'm certain they rejoice at the throne of Jesus like I urge the parents of Encourage to remember and cling to the hope that they too will say, Behold, I make all things new. They will praise God for that. But we have to remember, for parents of prodigal sons, we have to remember how the story ends with a feast and the fatted calf who was slain, which I had that picture here. What can we learn from that? Well, one thing, the calf was fattened up while the prodigal son was gone. Life went on. The father continued living his life at home, caring for the dog in the picture who was so excited to see his master back. The calf had to be fed, and that meant planting fields, and I'm certain there were vineyards that were tended as well. And I'm certainly convinced that the father and his household enjoyed the fruit of the vine while he was gone. So many parents, their joy is robbed when, when a son or daughter leaves them. And so I encourage them, and, and, and priests like Father encourage them to find the joy that God, God, God gave to them and, and that the, the enemy robbed. So my final word to those of you, if you have parents, if you are parents who are struggling with this, cling to hope, trust in God, trusting that you will be in awe and wonder at the remarkable story of your child's homecoming. Now, my final thought is the most important thing that I have learned in my journey. The greatest battle of my life has been, has been accepting that it is good that I exist in the way that I exist. I always accepted that God loved me, but it seemed like it was something he had to do, sort of like it was his job. I couldn't imagine really that God actually liked me. At best, I always felt that he must tolerate me and that more often than not, I'm an annoyance to him who causes him to shake his head and roll his eyes. But now, however, I'm convinced that God is a fan of me. God is a fan of Dan. I'm grateful for that. God actually likes me. There's a remarkable thing that Pope Francis said in one of his audiences. He said, the Holy Spirit teaches us to see with the eyes of Christ, to live life as Christ lived, to understand life as Christ understood it. He tells us that we are loved by God as children, that we can love God as his children, and that by his grace we can live as children of God like Jesus. And this is the most beautiful thing I've heard from a pope, I think. God loves you. God likes you. God is love. God is waiting for us. God is Father. He loves us as a true Father. He loves us truly, and only the Holy Spirit can tell us this in our hearts. Henry Nouwen struggled with this so much, too. If you read his writing, it's all about this question of his own self-worth of love. It's a wound we all live with, the feeling of self-loathing because of the accuser of our souls. The great deceiver has had one mission from the very beginning to cause us to doubt the Father's love for us. But Henry Nouwen, through a long journey of pain, understand, understood, like I've finally understood, is that God truly does look at us with the lies of a loving father. And Henry Nouwen, he said, what conversion is, is claiming again and again the truth of myself. And what is the truth of myself? That I am God's beloved child long before I was born, and before my father and my mother and my teachers and my church got involved, and I will be God's beloved child long after I have died. I go from God's intimate embrace into God's intimate embrace God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you before you were born. I love you, and I've written your name in my hand. You're safe in the palm of my hand, and I'm sending you into this world for a little time so, so that you'll have the chance to say, I love you too. That, for me, is the spiritual journey in a nutshell. I have come to the point in my life through the pain and sorrows of of living with same-sex attraction, that I now know who I am, why I'm here, and where I'm going, and I know whose I, am, whose I am. I'm the beloved son of God, and I learned this lesson because of living with the pain of same-sex attraction, which is why I found it to be a great and beautiful gift in my life, allowed by God, so that I might know who he is and know him better. So thank you for your time.
Thank you. Thank you so much, Daniel. So we have time for a few questions. Um, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I'll come and bring the mic to you. Thank you. I just had a quick question. Um, I have a family member, a parent who's gay, and mm. it did one of those things, destroyed the family. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so my question is, is uh, I love your whole story and, and the video, and I hope to share it. But um, I think the biggest challenge in the 20 years that this has been around for my family is, um, and coming back to the faith recently um, here in D.C., is that there are other Catholics who are making so dang hard. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not necessarily the world. It's Catholics. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lo- many Catholics are saying, oh, no, it's, it's okay. You've got to do this with them. And, um, and it's, uh, so uh, I know you've experienced, uh, you have a great insight, and so I just want to get some of your insight on that and how to deal with it. Yeah, it's, it's, that's very hard, and we, we see that in families. It's hardest if you have a, another family member who's saying, well, come on, get with the program. What's the deal? That, that's what it really painful, when one member of the, of, of the, the family is, is committed to the truth. Uh, to me, um, with that frustration, it's going to be there. Um, it will always be there. You think about the frustration with the Arian heresy, you know, St. Nicodemus punched Arius, right? Because he was frustrated. These doggone Catholics. I don't recommend being a pugilist to solve this. But we, we have to recognize that that frustration is going to be there. Your job primarily is to not let it get in under your skin. You know, we, we don't have many control any control over other Catholics. Now, we also need to urge, write letters to your bishops or cardinals and say, please, I'm, I'm trying I, we need help from these shepherds. I, I, I loved uh, Bishop Paprocki um, recently just spoke very clearly and eloquently about the church's teaching on this. And Cardinal Seurat in the Wall Street Journal, uh, he was kind enough to, to recommend my book, but he was very clear about the, the, the good news that the church has. So I think you have to find people of like mind. You have to really be sure that you don't let that frustration rule you. It's like I have a battle with road rage, you know. We can have Catholic rage sometimes, I think. So we have to be careful with that. But we have to, we have to find ways to promote the church's teaching and win some ways too. But, but I hope that helps a little bit. Dan, thank you so much for your witness and for speaking out. I just have sort of another kind of practical question. Um, when you've got a prodigal person in your life and they haven't gone very far you know they're still in the family and um these conversations come up like i'm i guess okay here's my my biggest fear everyone (laughs) is that um like i haven't yet been confronted with a relationship Mm -hmm. that i have to um address i'm like another person so i'm i'm just wondering what what advice you would give to when another person enters the picture sure that's a that's a common question and it's happening more and more all the time right um first off don't freak out right anticipate it uh, it probably will happen uh, one thing i would before i answer that directly in future conversations that you have with this loved one um avoid talking about morality i mean uh, not that we don't do that, but but so often parents and family members, well, you know that you're what the church says, you know. And if they've been raised in a well-formed church, we want to talk about that clearly. Of course, we're going to talk about morality, but first of all, <laughs> listen to them. Um, I, I had a remarkable conversation with a fellow at uh, University of Mary in uh, North Dakota, I think it is. And I just sat and listened to his story. I said, well, tell me what your life has been. You know, especially your family members say, you know, I didn't know that you struggled with this. What was that like? I'm not, and it, well, does the church say this? No, I, I love you. I don't want to, we're not going to talk about the church's teaching. What was this like? What would have helped you? Why didn't you feel comfortable telling us? Or I'm so sorry for that. You know, just really enter into that wound and love them that way. Um, but as far as when that, if and when that happens, a really good guiding principle is, is hopefully the, the, the family has established that if you're 
whatever unchastity you're engaged in, if, if Bill is living with Judy, right, there's certain rules. You've come home, you're not staying in the same bedroom, right? And so you've established that. So try to treat this relationship the way you might treat a relationship where it was a man and a woman. And that, that kind of gives some freedom to say, well, how would I respond? Respond in a similar way. And that really, I think, is a, a, a helpful guiding principle to a lot of people. And pray a lot of rosaries. I just want to thank you for your uh, t- for your testimony. I mean, I read a little bit about uh, Catherine Doherty years ago, and I come from the Eastern Catholic tradition. I was wondering if uh, she ever led you to studying about you know some of the Hesychastic fathers of you know study, emphasis on peace, self abandonment, and so forth. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm a single guy, so. Uh, we can possibly have similar, sure, uh, you know, things that we deal that we deal with. I was just wondering if you've looked into it in order to find grounding for yourself. I one of the most valuable books that I've read in all of this um, was not from an Eastern person, but told what is the title? Self abandonment to divine providence by yes. I, I, what was the name again? I forget. Yeah. You know, it's a really beautiful book to sit there and and uh, to realize that um, God allows things in our lives, ultimately that will bring us good. Um, Father John Harvey had a great line. Uh, he was such a wise and saintly man. He said one of mo- one of the most difficult virtues to acquire is willing acceptance of the permissive will of God. Uh, and I also found great freedom in uh, uh, Jacques Philippe's book, Interior Freedom. Because he says, uh, we have to willingly choose things. If we're going to have peace, we, we willingly choose with an act of our will things that befall us, like being single. Um, and that's when they can become fruitful. But I, I, Catherine Doherty is, is, is stirring with me a desire to, to know more of Eastern spirituality. So you have to give me a recommendation yeah, when we're done. Thank you for the very good talk. Uh, just out of curiosity, do you think, the same-sex attraction is nature or nurture? <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's such a such a uh, a tricky question. You know, I write in my book that I find great help from the church's teaching that says that this has a psychological genesis, and I can see clearly the the wounds in my psychosexual development that led to this. You know, there was there was a an experience, an encounter with a, another boy when I was eight or nine. And um, all the things, that the classic things that we've talked about, you know, uh, um, I was intimidated by my dad and, and men, you know, I was a sensitive artistic sort, you know, and I kind of clung to my mom. And people mock that model now. Uh, but I also had rejection from from girls, you know, and I, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I asked this girl out in the band, you know, I was a good trombone player. I thought maybe that would help, but <laughs> apparently not. But I asked this girl out in the band to the prom, and, and you know, she said, well, great. Uh, that's so kind that you'd ask me. But I heard Chad was going to ask me out. Are you willing to wait? Basically, she was, she, I, she was like, will you be the backup, my backup plan, plan B? And, uh, well, it turned out that the guy that she asked out was the captain of the, the football team, you know, uh, and so that was a deep wound. And I'll tell you, as a sophomore, um, some of you remember Seinfeld. I had a Seinfeld moment at Epcot. I was, I was playing there uh, one summer as a junior in college. And I suddenly had this attraction to a uh, woman in the trombone section. And we kind of dated for six weeks. And I thought, wow, what's this like? This is weird. Uh, but she seemed to like me. But then she broke up with me, and I, I like to say this is my George Costanza moment. George Costanza always was having women dump him, right? And so he, come, he comes running into Jerry. Jerry, you wouldn't believe it. Linda, Linda broke up with me. And Jerry is sitting with the paper. Big deal. That's no news. She dumped me to, she dumped me to date a woman. And the newspaper goes down. Well, that's what happened to me. She ended a relationship with me to date a woman. And I can, I, I get, I've gotten a lot of good beers, free beers out of that over the years. <laughs> I tell that story. So God does work good out of everything. <laughs> but that was painful at the time, very painful. But so that model of all these, all these models, they fit my story. Now, that's not a universal experience. So 
Uh, is there some nature involved? I don't know. I can clearly see the environment and nurture. And there's com- I've, I've, I wrote my book, and I had some members of the Courage Apostles say, it's painful for me to read because it's just like my story. Maybe I see this because I work on this issue like you do, but um, it, what do you think of, uh, of the fact that this issue so dominates our time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the times yeah. that we live in. Yeah. Well, I... I um, I, I was talking about this with, with uh, uh, some folks last night, David Schindler last night, and, and somebody else from the JP2 Institute. Uh, um, you know, every heresy in the church, it, every, every problem, there's been some sort of issue with sexuality, right? Uh, the Reformation, let's start a whole new church because I can't get a divorce, right? That's the issue of chastity. The Church of England was started because of unchastity. And it just seems to be progressing more and more. It's an attack, uh, as you well know, on the family. Um, but, but for me, it, it, I view it, this is my thought and my hope, is I, I wonder if this attack on marriage and the family is the instrument that God is going to use to bring union back to the church. That's what my hope and prayer is. I feel like we're in this moment where maybe that prayer is finally going to be answered because we're now having evangelicals and Catholics speaking together and realizing, wow, this is, this is the time where we really have to come back together. That's my thought and my hope, but other people would probably have better answers than that. Um, thank you so much. You gave a very uh, profound and deep talk, and I, I really appreciate it. I'm very, I'm, I didn't know what I was walking into. It was very inspirational. Um, and I have a very superficial question. Um, can you say just a word about the vernacular? Because um, you, um, I read it in one of the intros to this, but uh, I'm just curious how you feel about it. That is not a superficial question. That is, that is the fundamental question in my mind. Um, the question is, who are we, really? And uh, um, we're a religion of the word, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And, and if a, we're a religion of the word, the words God uses matters. And I find that, what did he say? He, he said, male and female, he created them. Those are our soul sexual identities. Now, we think that gay and straight and homosexual and heterosexual just makes sense. But those two words were invented in 1862, homosexual and heterosexual. We've accepted them. How many of you have accepted the term scoliosexual? Anybody heard of scoliosexual? Yeah, so when, when de- demisexual, anybody demisexual, neutral, you heard that one? Yeah. So there's all these new words and new identities, and they lend them the air of authority as if we're like doing a taxonomical investigation of the animal kingdom, right? Um, so the scoliosexual is a new identity that, that we, we're supposed to accept, um, and the scoliosexual is a person who says, you know who I am? I am only attracted to queer people. Um, well, how do you define that? That means you're not attracted to a cisgendered person. Who knows what a cisgendered person is? <laughs> right? It's this growing cavalcade of words, and it began with homosexual and heterosexual. It began there, and suddenly that divided the world in a way it never had been divided. And I write that it's very limited. Imagine if you were to say of Christ, Christ was incarnate of the Virgin Mary as a straight man. (laughs) Or that Our Lady realized her heterosexual orientation by giving birth to Jesus. There's an impoverishment to them. And what do the words do? They focus primarily on our sexuality solely in realms of the romantic and the erotic. And if we sit there, what is sexuality for, ultimately? Jesus and Mary, who never engaged in sexual intimacy, lived out their sexual identity more fully than anyone. So sexuality is ordered towards motherhood or fatherhood. That's our true sexual orient. That's our, the, the, what sex is for. And so for me, I really am on a mission to help people to, to find freedom from these divisions of words. I, had, I, I spoke to a, a high school group in Pittsburgh, and I got a handwritten card from a, from a guy 
and it said, if I'm attracted to the same sex, does it mean I'm gay? I said, no, you are a beloved son of God. You are a man made in the image and likes of God. And so I feel that we have really done a disservice to our young people by embracing the, this nomenclature. And so this is why I say I identify as a man. Now, if I'm going to talk about this part of my life, I'll say I live with same-sex attraction. And I, it's clunky, but it's liberating. It has liberating and set me free. And the truth, I'll end with this, the 1986 pastoral letter uh, on the pastoral care of the homosexual person, Ratzinger said, uh, he said, only what is true is pastoral. And I find that so profound. So I think we're out of time. Thank you so much. For- Thank you so much for joining us, Daniel, and for sharing your story and helping us engage in that conversation as a community. Um, As everyone here is aware, it is such an important conversation for us to be having. Um, If you have any other questions for Daniel, I'm sure he'll be more than happy to answer them after he signs books for everyone. Um, We also have a reception, so please stay. Um, And thank you again for coming. We have some great upcoming events uh, lined up for the fall, so please check out our website at CICDC.org. Next week, we have a co-sponsored event with National Review Institute. Uh, titled uh, Can We Save Marriage? Um, So it's another conversation that really needs to be had as well. So we hope you can come out to that, and thank you, and God bless.